Section 41 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 13, Part 5. Every now and again, Mr. Harby would swoop down to examine exercise books. For a whole hour, he would be going round the class taking book after book, comparing page after page, whilst Ursula stood aside for all the remarks and fault-finding to be pointed at her through the scholars. It was true. Since she had come, the composition books had grown more and more untidy, disorderly, filthy. Mr. Harby pointed to the pages done before her regime, and to those done after, and fell into a passion of rage. Many children he sent out to the front with their books, and after he had thoroughly gone through the silent and quivering class, he caned the worst offenders well, in front of the others, thundering in real passion of anger and chagrin. Such a condition in a class! I can't believe it! It is simply disgraceful! I can't think how you have been let to get like it! Every Monday morning I shall come down and examine these books, so don't think that because there is nobody paying attention to you, that you are free to unlearn everything you have learnt and go back till you are not fit for standard three. I shall examine all books every Monday. Then, in a rage, he went away with his cane, leaving Ursula to confront a pale, quivering class whose childish faces were shut in blank resentment, fear and bitterness, whose souls were full of anger and contempt for her rather than of the master, whose eyes looked at her with the cold, inhuman accusation of children and she could hardly make mechanical words to speak to them. When she gave an order they obeyed with an insolent off-handedness, as if to say, As for you, do you think we would obey you, but for the master? She sent the blubbering, caned boys to their seats, knowing that they too jeered at her and her authority, holding her weakness responsible for what punishment had overtaken them. And she knew the whole position, so that even her horror of physical beating and suffering sank to a deeper pain, and became a moral judgment upon her, worse than any hurt. She must, during the next week, watch over her books and punish any fault. Her soul decided it coldly. Her personal desire was dead for that day at least. She must have nothing more of herself in school. She was to be standard five teacher only. That was her duty. In school, she was nothing but standard five teacher. Ursula Brangwyn must be excluded. So that, pale, shut, at last distant and impersonal, she saw no longer the child, how his eyes danced, or how he had a queer little soul that could not be bothered with shaping handwriting, so long as he dashed down what he thought. She saw no children, only the task that was to be done. And keeping her eyes there, on the task, and not on the child, she was impersonal enough to punish where she could otherwise only have sympathised, understood, and condoned, to approve where she would have been merely uninterested before. But her interest had no place any more. It was agony to the impulsive, bright girl of seventeen to become distant and official, having no personal relationship with the children. For a few days, after the agony of the Monday, she succeeded, and had some success with her class. But it was a state not natural to her, 
and she began to relax. Then came another infliction. There were not enough pens to go round the class. She sent to Mr. Harby for more. He came in person. Not enough pens, Miss Brangwen, he said, with the smile and calm of exceeding rage against her. No, we are six shot, she said, quaking. Oh, how is that? he said menacingly. Then, looking over the class, he asked, How many are there here today? Fifty-two, said Ursula. But he did not take any notice, counting for himself. Fifty-two, he said. And how many pens are there, Staples? Ursula was now silent. He would not heed her if she answered, since he had addressed the monitor. There's a very curious thing, said Mr. Harby, looking over the silent class with a slight grin of fury. All the childish faces looked up at him, blank and exposed. A few days ago there were sixty pens for this class. Now there are forty-eight. What is forty-eight from sixty, Williams? There was a sinister suspense in the question. A thin, ferret-faced boy in a sailor suit started up exaggeratedly. Please, sir, he said. Then a slow, sly grin came over his face. He did not know. There was a tense silence. The boy dropped his head. Then he looked up again, a little cunning triumph in his eyes. Twelve, he said. I would advise you to attend, said the headmaster dangerously. The boy sat down. Forty-eight from sixty is twelve, so there are twelve pens to account for. Have you looked for them, Staples? Yes, sir. Then look again. The scene dragged on. Two pens were found. Ten were missing. Then the storm burst. Am I to have you thieving, besides your dirt and bad work and bad behaviour? The headmaster began. Not content with being the worst behaved and dirtiest class in the school. You are thieves into the bargain, are you? It's a very funny thing. Pens don't melt into the air. Pens are not in the habit of mizzling away into nothing. What has become of them, then? They must be somewhere. What has become of them? For they must be found, and found by Standard 5. They were lost by Standard 5, and they must be found. Ursula stood and listened, her heart hard and cold. She was so much upset that she felt almost mad. Something in her tempted her to turn on the headmaster and tell him to stop, about the miserable pens, but she did not. She could not. After every session, morning and evening, she had the pens counted. Still they were missing, and pencils and India rubbers disappeared. She kept the class staying behind, till the things were found. But as soon as Mr. Harby had gone out of the room, the boys began to jump about and shout, and at last they bolted in a body from the school. This was drawing near a crisis. She could not tell Mr. Harby, because, while he would punish the class, he would make her the cause of the punishment, and her class would pay her back with disobedience and derision. Already there was a deadly hostility grown up between her and the children. After keeping in the class, at evening, to finish some work. She would find boys dodging behind her, calling after her, Brangwen, Brangwen, Proudacre. When she went into Ilkeston of a Saturday morning with Gudrun, she heard again the voices yelling after her, Brangwen, Brangwen. She pretended to take no notice, but she coloured with shame at being held up to derision in the public street. She, Ursula Brangwen of Cossethay, could not escape from the standard five-teacher which she was. In vain she went out to buy ribbon for her hat. They called after her, the boys she tried to teach. And one evening, 
As she went from the edge of the town into the country, stones came flying at her. Then the passion of shame and anger surpassed her. She walked on unheeding, beside herself. Because of the darkness, she could not see who were those that threw, but she did not want to know. Only in her soul a change took place. Nevermore, and nevermore would she give herself as individual to her class. Never would she, Ursula Brangwyn, the girl she was, the person she was, come into contact with those boys. She would be standard five teacher, as far away personally from her class as if she had never set foot in St. Philip's school. She would just obliterate them all and keep herself apart, take them as scholars only. So her face grew more and more shut, and over her flayed, exposed soul of a young girl, who had gone open and warm to give herself to the children, there set a hard, insentient thing, that worked mechanically according to a system imposed. It seemed she scarcely saw her class the next day. She could only feel her will, and what she would have of this class which she must grasp into subjection. It was no good, any more, to appeal, to play upon the better feelings of the class. Her swift-working soul realised this. She, as teacher, must bring them all, as scholars, into subjection. And this she was going to do, all else she would forsake. She had become hard and impersonal, almost avengeful on herself as well as on them, since the stone-throwing. She did not want to be a person, to be herself any more, after such humiliation. She would assert herself for mastery, be only teacher. She was set now. She was going to fight and subdue. She knew by now her enemies in the class. The one she hated most was Williams. He was a sort of defective, not bad enough to be so classed. He could read with fluency and had plenty of cunning intelligence, but he could not keep still, and he had a kind of sickness very repulsive to a sensitive girl, something cunning and etiolated and degenerate. Once he had thrown an inkwell at her, in one of his mad little rages. Twice he had run home out of class. He was a well-known character. And he grinned up his sleeve at this girl teacher, sometimes hanging round her to fawn on her. But this made her dislike him more. He had a kind of leech-like power. From one of the children she took a supple cane, and this she determined to use when real occasion came. One morning, at composition, she said to the boy Williams, Why have you made this blot? Please, miss, it fell off my pen, he whined out, in the mocking voice that he was so clever in using. The boys near snorted with laughter, for Williams was an actor. He could tickle the feelings of his hearers subtly. Particularly, he could tickle the children with him into ridiculing his teacher, or indeed, any authority of which he was not afraid. He had that peculiar jail instinct. Then you must stay in and finish another page of composition, said the teacher. This was against her usual sense of justice, and the boy resented it derisively. At twelve o'clock she caught him slinking out. Williams, sit down, she said, and there she sat, and there he sat, alone, opposite to her, on the back desk, looking up at her with his furtive eyes every minute. Please, miss, I've got to go an errand, he called out insolently. Bring me your book, said Ursula. The boy came out flapping his book along the desks. He had not written a line. Go back and do the writing you have to do, said Ursula, and she sat at her desk, trying to correct books. 
She was trembling and upset, and for an hour the miserable boy writhed and grinned in his seat. At the end of that time he had done five lines. As it is so late now, said Ursula, you will finish the rest this evening. The boy kicked his way insolently down the passage. The afternoon came again. Williams was there, glancing at her, and her heart beat thick, for she knew it was a fight between them. She watched him. During the geography lesson, as she was pointing to the map with her cane, the boy continually ducked his whitish head under the desk and attracted the attention of other boys. Williams, she said, gathering her courage, for it was critical now to speak to him. What are you doing? He lifted his face, the sore-rimmed eyes half-smiling. There was something intrinsically indecent about him. Ursula shrank away. Nothing, he replied, feeling a triumph. What are you doing? she repeated her heartbeat suffocating her. Nothing, replied the boy, insolently, aggrieved, comic. If I speak to you again, you must go down to Mr. Harby, she said. But this boy was a match even for Mr. Harby. He was so persistent, so cringing, and flexible. He howled so when he was hurt, that the master hated more the teacher who sent him, than he hated the boy himself. For of the boy he was sick of the sight, which Williams knew. He grinned visibly. Ursula turned to the map again, to go on with the geography lesson, but there was a little ferment in the class. Williams' spirit infected them all. She heard a scuffle, and then she trembled inwardly. If they all turned on her this time, she was beaten. Please, miss, called a voice in distress. She turned round. One of the boys she liked was ruefully holding out a torn celluloid collar. She heard the complaint, feeling futile. Go in front, right, she said. She was trembling in every fibre. A big, sullen boy, not bad but very difficult, slouched out to the front. She went on with the lesson, aware that Williams was making faces at Wright, and that Wright was grinning behind her. She was afraid. She turned to the map again, and she was afraid. Please, miss, Williams, came a sharp cry and a boy on the back row was standing up, with drawn, pained brows, half a mocking grin on his pain, half real resentment against Williams. Please, miss, he's nipped me, and he rubbed his leg ruefully. Come in front, Williams, she said. The rat-like boy sat with his pale smile and did not move. Come in front, she repeated, definite now. I shan't, he cried snarling, rat-like, grinning. Something went click in Ursula's soul. Her face and eyes set. She went through the class straight. The boy cowered before her glowering, fixed eyes, but she advanced on him, seized him by the arm, and dragged him from his seat. He clung to the form. It was the battle between him and her. Her instinct had suddenly become calm and quick. She jerked him from his grip, and dragged him, struggling and kicking, to the front. He kicked her several times, and clung to the forms as he passed. But she went on. The class was on its feet in excitement. She saw it, and made no move. She knew if she let go the boy, he would dash to the door. Already he had run home once out of her class. So she snatched her cane from the desk, 
and brought it down on him. He was writhing and kicking. She saw his face beneath her, white, with eyes like the eyes of a fish, stony, yet full of hate and horrible fear. And she loathed him, the hideous writhing thing that was nearly too much for her. In horror lest he should overcome her, and yet at the heart quite calm, she brought down the cane again and again, whilst he struggled, making inarticulate noises and lunging vicious kicks at her. With one hand she managed to hold him, and now and then the cane came down on him. He writhed like a mad thing, but the pain of the strokes cut through his writhing, vicious, coward's courage, bit deeper, till at last, with a long whimper that became a yell, he went limp. She let him go, and he rushed at her, his teeth and eyes glinting. There was a second of agonized terror in her heart. He was a beast thing. Then she caught him, and the cane came down on him. A few times, madly, in a frenzy, he lunged and writhed to kick her. But again the cane broke him. He sank with a howling yell on the floor, and like a beaten beast, lay there yelling. Mr. Harby had rushed up towards the end of this performance. What's the matter? he roared. Ursula felt as if something were going to break in her. I've thrashed him, she said, her breast heaving, forcing out the words on the last breath. The headmaster stood choked with rage, helpless. She looked at the writhing, howling figure on the floor. Get up, she said. The thing writhed away from her. She took a step forward. She had realised the presence of the headmaster for one second, and then she was oblivious of it again. Get up, she said, and with a little dart the boy was on his feet. His yelling dropped to a mad blubber. He had been in a frenzy. Go and stand by the radiator, she said. As if mechanically, blubbering, he went. The headmaster stood robbed of movement or speech. His face was yellow. His hands twitched convulsively. But Ursula stood stiff not far from him. Nothing could touch her now. She was beyond Mr. Harby. She was as if violated to death. The headmaster muttered something, turned, and went down the room. Whence, from the far end, he was heard roaring in a mad rage at his own class. The boy blubbered wildly by the radiator. Ursula looked at the class. There were fifty pale, still faces watching her, a hundred round eyes fixed on her in an attentive, expressionless stare. Give out the history readers, she said to the monitors. There was dead silence. As she stood there, she could hear again the ticking of the clock and the chock of piles of books taken out of the low cupboard. Then came the faint flap of books on the desks. The children passed in silence, their hands working in unison. They were no longer a pack, but each one separated into a silent, closed thing. Take page 125 and read that chapter, said Ursula. There was a click of many books opened. The children found the page and bent their heads obediently to read, and they read mechanically. Ursula, who was trembling violently, went and sat in her high chair. The blubbering of the boy continued. The strident voice of Mr. Brunt, the roar of Mr. Harby, came muffled through the glass partition. And now and then a pair of eyes rose from the reading book, rested on her a moment, 
watchful, as if calculating impersonally, then sank again. She sat still without moving, her eyes watching the class, unseeing. She was quite still and weak. She felt that she could not raise her hand from the desk. If she sat there forever, she felt she could not move again, nor utter a command. It was a quarter past four. She almost dreaded the closing of the school, when she would be alone. The class began to recover its ease. The tension relaxed. Williams was still crying. Mr. Brunt was giving orders for the closing of the lesson. Ursula got down. Take your place, Williams, she said. He dragged his feet across the room, wiping his face on his sleeve. As he sat down, he glanced at her furtively, his eyes still redder. Now he looked like some beaten rat. At last the children were gone. Mr. Harby trod by heavily, without looking her way or speaking. Mr. Brunt hesitated as she was locking her cupboard. If you settle Clark and let's in the same way, Miss Brangwen, you'll be all right, he said, his blue eyes glancing down in a strange fellowship, his long nose pointing at her. Shall I? She laughed nervously. She did not want anybody to talk to her. As she went along the street, clattering on the granite pavement, she was aware of boys dodging behind her. Something struck her hand that was carrying her bag, bruising her. As it rolled away, she saw that it was a potato. Her hand was hurt, but she gave no sign. Soon she would take the tram. She was afraid and strange. It was to her quite strange and ugly, like some dream where she was degraded. She would have died rather than admit it to anybody. She could not look at her swollen hand. Something had broken in her. She had passed a crisis. Williams was beaten, but at a cost. Feeling too much upset to go home, she rode a little farther into the town and got down from the tram at a small tea shop. There, in the dark little place behind the shop, she drank her tea and ate bread and butter. She did not taste anything. The taking of tea was just a mechanical action to cover over her existence. There she sat in the dark, obscure little place, without knowing. Only unconsciously she nursed the back of her hand, which was bruised. When finally she took her way home, it was sunset red across the west. She did not know why she was going home. There was nothing for her there. She had, true, only to pretend to be normal. There was nobody she could speak to, nowhere to go for escape. But she must keep on, under this red sunset, alone, knowing the horror in humanity that would destroy her and with which she was at war. Yet it had to be so. End of section 41 Recording by Howard Ferguson at howardferguson.co.uk